Okay, let's turn to Romans 8 this morning, please. Romans 8, good to see you. This is the 100th increment of Romans today. The 100th message, Romans the Epistle, also known as reading Romans with the light on. And we've explained that from time to time throughout. I usually take a little time to read in my leisure after reading much theology and exegeting scripture to the point of exhaustion, and that is literally true to the point of exhaustion. I take a break and I read my favorite American literature, and my favorite time of American history was during the French and Indian War, previous to the Revolutionary War times, and my favorite author of that time is James Fenimore Cooper. Now, of course, Cooperstown, where the Baseball Hall of Fame is found, is named after James Fenimore Cooper, and he writes of the exploits of a young man. In fact, it starts when he's about 21, 22 years old and ends up when he's about 83 years old, a series of adventures the first of which is called the Deerslayer, and also known as or the first warpath. And I was intrigued by a conversation. He has a friend, and his friend is from the Delaware tribe of indigenous peoples at the time, also known as Mohican tribe, and his name is Chingachgook. That's what I nicknamed my son Jared when he was little. I always called him Chingachgook. They had a wonderful friend friendship. Chingachgook in the English language means the great serpent. And Hawkeye, also known as the deer slayer, the French called him Le Long Carbine, the long rifle. He never missed. And so he was named Hawkeye by the Iroquois warrior. And... His best friend was Chingachgook. He called him the great Sarpent in his own little dialect. And he was facing in this first warpath the torture called the torments. He was going to face, as a captive of the Huron Indians, they were going to torture him, which was one of their rituals because he had killed one of their warriors in battle. And he was going to face the torments, and he began to describe a few of them, and he was very calm about it, calmer than I would be. And he had a conversation with Chingachgook, the great serpent, and the upshot of it was very intriguing. The great serpent says to him, as the conversation gets theological, this is on page 421 of the Deerslayer, he says to Chingachgook says to Natty Bumpo, also known as the Deerslayer, he said, I thought you believed that all men were wicked. Who then can ever find your heaven? He's talking about what he wants him to do with his body afterwards, etc. Deerslayer answers in his own dialect, and he said, that's in genus, but it falls short of the missionary teachings, he says. You'll be Christianized one day, I make no doubt, and then twill all come plain enough. 
you must know, Sarpent, that there's been a great deed of salvation done, and that by and by God's help enables all men to find pardon for their wickedness. This is a conversation in a novel. Search for one today in a modern novel, you might not find it. But he expects, and he, in fact, he sees in the past, there's been a great deed of salvation done. And it enables all men to find pardon. This is the gospel as it existed in the 1750s in the United States of America. This book was written in 1841 by Cooper. And, of course, as I said, it's a fantastic series of, doc- of writings called The Leatherstocking Tales. When men understood, men and women understood that the providence of God falls like a blanket over all human events, that confidence existed in the characters. That deed, a great deed of salvation, done, is a deed that has been done in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the deed that when it was done, was declared to be done in the word to Telestai. Finished. It is finished. Now, what I want to consider today is a connection between Genesis 1-1 to 2 and Romans chapter 8, which we'll creep up on. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, it says. But we know from the Greek that the word in the beginning is NRK. NRK. E-N-A-R-C-H-E. This word appears again in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 and following in that famous poem which begins by introducing Christ as the image of God and also he is called there Hearche. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Christ, and this takes it out of a time warp, and puts it into an overall comprehensive understanding of what God is doing now, what he has done, what he will do in the consummation of creation. In Christ, God makes the heavens and the earth. He goes on to say, but the earth became tohu wabohu, says the Hebrew, without form and void. Now someone will say, well, God doesn't make things formless and void and he doesn't that's true but the creation is without him formless and void it is without form without purpose without shape without meaning without definition without him creation on its own without him is without form and it's void and we live in a time right now where all creation, according to Romans 8, is sighing, groaning with inexpressible groans for anticipation to be delivered from its state of futility. Creation now then, not way back then, but creation now is in a state of formlessness 
and void. Creation now, according to Romans 8.20, God says, Paul says through the scripture and through the Holy Spirit, God made creation, the creation, subject to vanity, subject to futility, which is, again, void and without form in itself. That's kind of like us. Without me, you can do nothing. I'm reminded of this recently and reminded of this every time I step here into this pulpit and every time I step into my study, my Gethsemane at home, every time I step into this pulpit, I'm aware that I can do nothing without him, that creation is nothing without him. So God distinguishes the creation from himself, but then his aim is to fill up all creation with himself. The final end to all of this is called telos. Tell us about the telos. And that's the word T-E-L-O-S. I'm just kind of free-falling now. So. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end, telos, T-E-L-O-S. When the sun, after reigning over all of creation, after reigning as the Lord of the living and the dead, after when all things are subjected to him, according to the prophecy in Psalm 110.1, the most important psalm in all of the New Testament, because it portrays Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. When all the enemies are made a footrest for his feet, and the last enemy that's destroyed, the last eschaton enemy, is death in 1526, then the Son will hand off, hand over everything to the Father. The Son will subject himself. But the idea here is not that the Son, Jesus Christ, is subordinate in his essence to the father or something less than the father. When he subordinates himself to the father, he's presenting himself as comprising all of that creation, filling up all that creation with himself. And he presents it to the father and God who introduces Jesus Christ. Remember last week, he tore the heavens and when the heavens were torn and a voice came down from the heavens the father's voice was heard to say, this is my son in whom I am very pleased in whom I am pleased. Colossians 1:19 says that in him, God was pleased to dwell in him. All the fullness of divinity was pleased to dwell. So the father was saying more than this is my son. I'm pleased with him. I'm pleased with his performance. I'm pleased with him as my son. He was saying, this is my son. I'm pleased to dwell fully in him. And so at the cross, Jesus said, the father has not left me alone. I always do those things that please him. And he has not left me alone. So in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ during the event which old Deerslayer called a great deed of salvation done. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them, 
And this goes to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26, a verse I can't escape lately, which says, but now, and that now is in contrast to the centuries in which lambs, rams, young bulls, doves were offered to God. But now, once and for all, hapax, once without need of repetition, once without need of repetition, once for all, for all of Israel, for all of Israel is saved within the context of the salvation of all of humanity. And all of humanity is saved within the context of the completed creation of a new heavens and the new earth. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ was the means by which God made the heavens and the earth and filled them up with himself. The creation was not finished by an act in the past of creation itself. The creation was only finished by an act of redemption when Jesus Christ said it's finished. When he said it's finished, he meant that the act of redemption, the act of salvation, the deed done by God was what really completed creation. And so as Romans 4.17 says, God does two things that distinguish him from any creature. God does two things as uncreated divine person that creation cannot do. He calls into existence things that were n had no existence, and he raises the dead. Both of these acts were required to make the heavens and the earth. God called into existence things that didn't exist before. Those things that he called into existence without him are without form and void. And so God fills up all those things with himself, but he does it through an act of redemption. God made the creation subject to futility in itself, not willingly. The creation didn't will that. The creation didn't say hey, would you make us subject to vanity? No, it was the will of him who subjected creation to futility. The potter makes the clay. The clay can't say to the potter, why have you made us this way? The creation cannot say to God, why did you make us subject to futility? Why did you make us in ourselves without form and void? The answer is this way. I made you without form and void in yourself so that I could fill you up with all the fullness of who I am. God makes, made all of creation to be a cathedral for his indwelling so that tell us in the end, God will be all in all. And as Jürgen Moltmann said at that time, God's punishment of evildoers will be their transformation by grace. Now grace reigns through righteousness is the declaration of Romans 5.21 at one of the peaks of the mountain range that is Romans. Now grace reigns through righteousness. 
That righteousness is none other than the great deed of salvation done. Righteousness is what God has done in Jesus Christ at the cross. Righteousness is what God has done in raising his son from the dead. Righteousness is the act of God in Christ, which completes the act of creation. Not only that, but in Genesis 1-2, it then says the spirit of God, the spirit of God, it's very explicit there all of a sudden, moved upon the face of the deep. The darkness covered the deep. The Holy Spirit brooded like a hen broods over her brood, over the darkness, over the deep, to make life come out of death and to make light come out of the darkness. And that's, again, found in Romans eight twenty six, where it says, the Spirit himself groans, sighs. Same word as all creation, sighing, groaning. And we groan with that creation. We groan together with it. We are sighing with great anticipation to be all filled up with all the fullness of God. So is creation. And the Holy Spirit is moving upon the face of the deep. That's what's going on right now. Genesis 1-2 is going on right now. The reason things are the way they are in history, the reason things are the way they are among sinful humanity is because the earth is in its without form and void stage. And now we who bear the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, the proleptic new creation, the proleptic Israel of God, by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are a kind of first fruits of God's creation. That means if we're the first fruits of God's creation, that means he's not done with his creation. If we're the first fruits of God's creation, that means God's not done with his creation. It still has a consummation to come to. God was pleased not only with his son, but in his son. Colossians 2.9 says that in him bodily, and that's the Greek word somatikos, somatikos, as we've seen before. And that's very important because this is dealing with the incarnation. S-O-M-A-T-I-K-O-S, Omicron, here, Omega, here. Somatikos, somatikos, that's bodily, tikos makes it. An adverbial form. In him, all the fullness of deity resides bodily. In Jesus Christ, there isn't anything divine that's not in him, that's not embodied in him, in his incarnate self. In him is all the fullness of divinity bodily. But when Jesus Christ became flesh, then in him was all created being embodied without exception. All divinity without exception. All uncreated reality without exception. If you've seen me, you've seen my father, he said. 
all of uncreated reality embodied in one name, Jesus, without exception, without remainder, all. Likewise, when he took on flesh and became flesh, there isn't any part of creation in all of its times, including humanity, including the angelic hosts. For Colossians 2.10 goes on to say he is the head of principalities and powers, meaning he is the head, the body of which includes angelic beings redeemed. The body of which includes humanity redeemed. The body of which includes all created reality. In fact, to me, this is what I see with enlightened eyes. I see all reality embodied in Jesus Christ. This reality becomes to me and has become to me a greater reality than the things I see. Therefore, my study is much more important than what Fox News tells me or CNN tells me or CBS or NBC or anyone else. The events of this present current time, though I'm aware of them, the event of this great deed of salvation done is my reality. My reality is Jesus. It's not a matter of my truth or your truth. It's a matter of the truth. And the truth is embodied in Jesus. As Ephesians 4.21 says. And as Jesus said. He was pretty humble when he said I am the truth. He was pretty humble when he said I am the way. Very humble when he said I am the life. We are made subject to futility. We can't love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. But the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. The Holy Spirit moved on the face of the deep. In fact, Paul refers right back there in Genesis 1-3 when he says, light was commanded to shine in darkness. He who commanded light to shine in darkness has shone in my heart. The darkness that Paul read about in Genesis was the darkness that was in his heart as a creature subject to vanity. And it wasn't until God spoke that light replaced the darkness. This is the light that he explains later shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Why is this the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ? Because that's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. For 47 years, I have looked into his word. I've gazed into his word. It's become an overwhelming priority. And I have seen not an understanding of the scriptures, not primarily. I have derived not an understanding of providence or history, though that's there too. I have seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All divinity 
without remainder is embodied in him. All creation in all of its times is embodied in him who is our savior. God's will always was for us. God always was for us. He didn't have to be propitiated in the sense of he was really mad at us, so he needed a child sacrifice, so he sacrificed his child. God was always for us. His intention was always the salvation of all mankind. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who is willing that all be saved. That willingness is not a wish. It's a determination, a resolution, an unstoppable intention. And so that backwoodsman with a hawk eye was right. There's been a great deed of salvation done. And it enables all men, all men and women, to find salvation. And God's the one that brings us to it. He that commanded light, shine in darkness, has shone into my heart, says Paul the Apostle. He wrote Romans with that light on. He wrote Romans with that light on. If there's any sorrow today in my heart, it is what Paul expressed in 2 Corinthians 4.3. If our gospel is hidden, and it is in some cases, it is hidden to those who are lost, in whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. It's not just believing in Christ he's talking about. It's those who do not believe in that great act of salvation done, which is creation-wide in its impact, which is all times, all creation in its impact. So in Genesis 1-2, we're there. Creation is still in its subjection to futility. I don't know about you, but... I'm not glorified yet. I can do nothing without him. I'm proud of that fact, in fact. I'm emboldened by it. Growing in grace is growing in the knowledge that you can't do anything without him. Growing in grace is growing in the fact that you realize more and more any competency you have is not of yourself. But our competency is of God. All the more so is that true with the minister of the New Testament, the servant, the preacher. Paul says our competency is not of ourselves, but of God. It all goes back to that day. God doesn't complete his creation by an act of calling things into existence. God completes his creation by raising the dead, by an act of salvific grace in Christ. And that's how he completes his creation. It is not by our will, but by his own will, he brought us forth, says James 1.18. He brought us forth. He called us into existence as a new creation. What did you have to do with it if you were non-existent? 
What does non-existence have to do with coming into existence? Other than to come into existence when God says to. So, that's what salvation is like. He calls us into existence as a new creation. That's why Paul was so shocked and appalled in Galatians 1 when he says, I'm amazed that you are so soon defecting from him who called you, meaning called you into existence as a new creation by the grace of Christ. So, yes, Sarpent, you must know there's been a great deed of salvation done. And that act of salvation is God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has given us, all of us, this word of reconciliation. And we simply say, be reconciled to God, which is simply be conformed to the reconciliation that's already occurred for you. Come around to it in your mind, in your heart, in your thinking. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We don't receive this grace in vain, Paul goes on to say. We don't receive this grace in vain. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of a new creation. And so for that reason, let's look at Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Therefore, there is no condemnation. Therefore, there is no condemnation. Paul is still going on that thing from Romans 7 in the first person. There is no condemnation. And that means the reverse. There is justification. This goes back to Romans 5.16 where it says that 5.16 through 18 that through sin entering into the world through one man condemnation came to all. But through Jesus Christ, one act, justification and life came to all mankind. So there's therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And that means there is no condemnation to anybody. Now listen carefully. There is no condemnation and therefore there is justification. Paul juxtaposes these two as opposites, condemnation, justification, Romans 5, 15 through 18, and then through 19. And so he's still thinking along these lines. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Please notice that what he's saying is he, he's not saying there's no condemnation for those who obey the law. He just disproved that whole thing in Romans 7. But for those in Christ Jesus who are baptized into his death, he says in Romans 6, but then I have to think this. If one died for all, then all died. All died when he died. So if all died when he died in that great act, that great 
deed of salvation done. Then when he rose, all rose with him in that one act of new creation, which is done. God said it from a throne in Revelation 21, 5 and 6. Look, I'm making all things new. It's done. It's done. So therefore, there is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is the no condemnation is related to being in Christ Jesus, not to fulfilling or doing the works of the law. Because we've learned no one alive can be justified in God's eyes, according to Psalm 143.2, quoted in Romans 3.20. The law of sin and death is what he talks about next. Look at verse 2. For the law, that's Torah, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The Torah is what he's talking about. The law is what he's talking about. The law of sin and death means the Torah as taken over, hijacked, abducted, and used by sin and death. Sin and death are two apocalyptic, inimical powers or inimical powers, adverse powers to God, adverse to God. Sin and death, capital S, capital D. Hamartias and Thanatos, two apocalyptic players. The law of sin and death means the law, God's law, given through Moses, but hijacked by sin and death. The law in the hands of sin and death, the law of the spirit of, the lo- of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me from the law as hijacked by sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me. He goes on with the first person that he was going through Romans 7 with, especially verses 19 through 25. For the law, the Torah, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And what is that law? It's the law that God spoke about in Ezekiel 36 when he said in verse 9, Behold, pay attention to this, I am for you. The central declaration of Romans, Romans 8.32, God is for us. Behold, I am for you, and you will be tilled and sown, he says. And as we've shown, he explains what he means in 3626, right down the line. For I will take out of you the stony heart. That's the tilling. You will be tilled. He plows the furrows, and when you have a furrow plowed, you take out the stones that you may do what? Plant the seed. You will be tilled the stony heart removed, and sown a heart of flesh will be put in you. That heart of flesh is none other than the heart of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. I will put a heart of flesh in you. That's Christ. And then he said in verse 27, and I will place my spirit in you. The spirit of life. I will place my spirit in you, and this is the spirit of life who takes control of the law that sin and death had control of, and he will cause you to walk or to observe and fulfill all of my commandments and judgments and ordinances. 
Well, what is all his commandments and judgments and ordinances? Paul says in Romans 13, 9, they're all summed up in this, that you will love one another. I will place my spirit in you and cause you to love one another, which is the fulfillment of the law. And this is how that one deed and act of salvation done by God moves over into immediately a God-approved livingness on our part. Because if you look quickly into Romans 8, 4, it says that the law, the requirement or the righteousness, the rectitude that the law requires is fulfilled in us who walk. And that's taken from Ezekiel 36, 27. Walk in my ordinances, who walk in the spirit and not in the flesh not under the flesh. So let's back up a little bit. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me, emancipated me from the law of sin and death. Literally, the sin and the death, it says, the sin and the death identifying them as adverse cosmic powers that once enslaved us. It hijacked the law, and we were under the law, and therefore under sin and under death, the wages of sin. So the law of sin and death is simply the Torah as hijacked by sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the power of resurrection that's resident and operative right in our bodily members. We never give it a chance because we're too busy trying to be competent in ourselves. And so, it is the power of resurrection, resident and operative. After all, who was it that raised him from the dead but the spirit of holiness in Romans 1.4? The Holy Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is present within our bodily members, says Romans 8.11. I'm just doing this because I won't be able to get there today. Romans 8.11. The Holy Spirit will also quicken your mortal bodies, make alive your mortal bodies in the bodily resurrection. But he's in your members now. So that we can even now, but then completely, but even now, live a life of participation in that power and in that love. And so the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me from the law of sin and death, or the law under control of sin and death. And so the power of resurrection is now resident and operative in our members by which the rectitude that the law commanded, the righteousness that the law commanded is all summed up in the Shema Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And you, Israel, will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. And Jesus added the twin mandate, the identical twin mandate from Leviticus nineteen eighteen, And you will love your neighbor as yourself. The opposite of what I hear political leaders say, be uncivil to people. That's the opposite of love one another, isn't it? So who are you going to listen to? I don't know. I don't listen to political leaders on either side. I'd rather listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. 
And that informs all my other decisions. My decisions are not informed by Hollywood. They're not informed by the White House. They're not informed by Congress or Senate or newscasters. My decisions are informed by what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. And if that ever coordinates with something somebody's saying, I'll go with it maybe. Maybe. So, that rectitude that the law requires is simply total love for God. But you as a creation and me as a creation, we're made subject to vanity. We, can, we are incapable of total love for God. And that's proven by our incapability of loving our neighbor as ourselves or loving one another. We have now in this country a stirred up hatred like I've never seen before in 68 years almost. I've never seen it like this before. And it's with a view to neither party taking over, but with a third party creating a kind of stasis by which the nation will be destroyed and taken over. People don't realize that on either side of this hate spectrum. They are being puppets and useful idiots for a power outside of themselves an inimical power to freedom that's going to enslave this whole nation. And so you're playing into it with hatred on either side, with reaction on either side. And that's why, that's one reason why I don't watch the news anymore. News don't report the news. They report what somebody said, and isn't that appalling? And somebody did this, and isn't that appalling? And yeah, but did you hear what the newscaster said? And isn't that appalling, says a newscaster about a newscaster. And the whole thing, the whole thing, from the reality that is Jesus, you can look inside of this thing and see the whole thing is a lot of people that are being used to create a tremendous atmosphere of mutual hatred, which will bring the whole country down. And it's already happening. We're on, the, we're on a road to serfdom, as one writer said. We're on a road to slavery. And you have a whole group of young people that assume that this thing called socialism is going to be the salvation. And socialism is a life-denying philosophy. I'm not talking politically now. Socialism is a life-denying philosophy. It's like Kronos, the god of time, who eats his children. And so that's not the answer. Right wing, left wing, neither of those have the answer. And that's why the gospel being preached right now, the gospel of peace, is so important at this time in history. Because the solution comes outside of politics. The solution comes from outside of politics. The salvation of people and individuals and nations is a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming into that nation, coming into those people. So note that righteousness and love are one thing here. Righteousness and love, and that's all I want you to understand right now for the rest of Romans. We're in Operation Delta, and we're ready to wind it down. Righteousness and love are one. The righteousness of God is fulfilled in us by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 4, when we walk in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean that the righteousness of God is fulfilled in us? Well, the righteousness that's required is love. In Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, which is related to the kingdom of God in, in Galatians 5.21, the, 
the kingdom of God. The inheritance of the kingdom of God is the experience of this love. The fruit of the spirit is love. The kingdom of God consists of the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, and peace. The first three, the first trio of three trios. But in Romans 14, 17, when Paul describes the kingdom of God, he said it's righteousness, joy, and peace, or righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Why does he say righteousness, peace, and joy in Romans 14, 17, describing the kingdom of God? And why does he say love, joy, and peace in describing the kingdom of God in Galatians 5.22? Because love and righteousness are interchangeable. The kingdom of God is righteousness, which is love being poured out in the hearts of the Israel of God for one another. Total love for God and love, self-forgetful love, self-sacrificing love for one another, both of which are impossible without the Holy Spirit's power. So please note that righteousness and love are one here. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me. The same me that had such a problem in in Romans 7, trying to be justified by the works of the law. The same me thanks God for its liberation. And this is what the liberation is. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has taken the law away from sin and death and now made it a law of power and life in the believer. And so, verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh. Here comes the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, which is equivalent to sin only as it's controlling the human itself. Flesh is simply sin as an apocalyptic power controlling individual people, operative within people's members even. So in Romans 8, 3, what the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh, that's the cosmic power of sin, which abducted the law and then became operative in human members. And I love this passage. What the law was powerless to do, God did. What the law was powerless to do, God did. There is a great deed of salvation done. Chingachkuk. There's been a great deed of salvation done. Great Sarpent, my dear friend. For what the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. This is over and against Abraham's son, Isaac, who was spared. This goes all the way to Romans 8.32. God did not spare his own son. The son that he's speaking of now is God's own son who was eternally begotten of the same substance as the father and is equal to the father in essence, name, rank, and act. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's sin-controlled and sin-complicit humanity. In the likeness of it. And for sin. 
The word here, peri, means on behalf of sin. And that I would translate that as with reference to sin, meaning as a sin offering. Sent his own son, sent his son. If you want to call it sent his son, you have John 3.17. God sent his son into the world to save the world, not to condemn the world. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus because there is no condemnation for the world. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. He sent his son. Or you can say God gave his son. Or you can say God is love. That means not only his essence, but his act. God is, as far as his act, his ongoing act, love. And he demonstrated this love by what? Sending his son into the world that we might live through him. Who's we? First John 2, 1 and 2. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the expiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. God's love was demonstrated in the act that we might call a great deed of salvation done. When he sent his son into the world that we might live through him. God is love. He demonstrates this love in making his son to be an expiation for our sins. First John agrees perfectly with Paul. And so, and for sin, or what I, I would say here, this should be translated as with reference to sin, that is its removal. He condemned sin. Please notice that it says he condemned sin, not you not human beings. He condemned sin. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, and that's all of humankind embodied in him through his incarnation, with him in his death, with him in his resurrection, even with him in his exaltation. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, here's something I'll leave to you as a question. Condemned sin in the flesh. I'll leave this to you, Eric. You're the seminary student. He condemned sin, not human beings, in the flesh. What flesh? Let me just leave this with you. The flesh in which sin was condemned, does it not have to be the flesh of Jesus Christ? He became flesh. Where did God condemn sin? In the flesh. Whose flesh? Well, I'm not saying. I'm just asking. Would it be Jesus Christ, the incarnate word? Because he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. He was made to become sin. He who became flesh in John 1.14 was made to be sin. So where did God condemn sin in the flesh? What flesh? Taken that way, it would seem to be that the flesh in which God condemned sin was the flesh of God's own son. He who was made to be flesh was made to be sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so sin, which Jesus was made to be, was condemned in the flesh that the eternal word became by incarnation. 
In any case, sin as embodied in the flesh was condemned, and so there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And who is in Christ Jesus? But all. The support of the central declaration that God is for us and that he freely handed his son over on behalf of us all, and I'm going to close shortly, as a sin offering for the whole of the human race, please read on your own 1 John 2, 1 and 2, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. And this also falls perfectly within the motif of God's great love in Ephesians 2, 4, with which he loved us supremely in the event which is the demonstration of God's righteousness, which at the same time was the demonstration of his love. God demonstrates his righteousness, Romans 3.21. God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, we, all of humanity in all of its times, Christ died on behalf of us, for us. God is for us, you tell me. Who can be successful against us? The accuser of the brethren, according to Revelation, he's been knocked down, cast down and out. So, it's a demonstration of righteousness, this great deed of salvation done in Romans 3.21. But the principle of God's righteousness or the origin of God's righteousness is love. I want to close with a couple of things I read this week. First of all, something by Martin Luther, of all people, Martin Luther, the great reformer from the 15th, 16th century, the one who nailed the 95 theses on the wall, or at least mailed them in to be nailed. He said this, if I were to paint God, I would portray him that in the very depths of his divine nature, there would be nothing else than a fire and passion, which is called love for people. Correspondingly, he says, love is precisely that thing which is neither human nor angelic, but divine, yea, God himself. I would portray him, he said, in the very depths of his divine nature, there would be nothing else than a fire and passion, which is called love for people, philanthropy, love one another, love people. How can that happen? It's God in us. The very center of his being is a fire. God himself. Song of Solomon 8.6 says this, Set me as a seal on your heart, as a tattoo on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Ardent love is as unrelenting as Sheol. Then he says this, love's flames are fiery flames, the fiercest of all. Have you got the hellfire in your doctrine? I got love fire in mine. It's fiercer than yours. Love's fire is the fiercest fire of all. Many waters cannot quench this love. Many offenses done to you by those who you love can't quench the love. Not if it's God's love. 
And Hebrews 12:29 very simply states, "Our God is a consuming fire." What? God is love, I thought. God is love, I thought. 1 John 4:8. Yeah. 1 John 4:16. God is love. Yeah. Now you're telling me God is a fire. Yeah, same thing. God is a fire that is love. God is love that is a fire that consumes sin, that consumes condemnation, that consumes all that is against the creation, that consumes its voidness and its emptiness and its formlessness, that consumes all that's against it. God's wrath is a severe anger because it's anger at everything that would destroy you. His love is for people. He loves all people, even the most to you grotesque or contrary. He loves all people. He loves them in their sinfulness, in their anger, in their frustration, in their hate, in all the stuff that makes human beings sinful. God loves them. His love is a consuming fire that will consume all that stuff that's unlovely. And so, God demonstrated that love. And that while we were still enslaved by sin and colluding with it, Christ died for us right then. What are they doing? They're sinning. He says as he's dying, Father, what are they doing? They're sinning. And that's why you're dying. Father, forgive them. And as I said this week, it's not like you're on a Coast Guard boat and the people are out there drowning in the sea. And the waves are coming and the thunder and lightning is happening. And you can't, and the people that are drowning, they're going under, they're coming up, they're going under, they're looking at you on the back of that boat. And you're crying out something to them. You're the rescue person. You're crying out to them. You're not throwing them that lifesaver. You're not throwing them the things that could save them. And so they're wondering what you're saying as they drown. And then finally the wind dies down for a second and they hear what you're saying. Do I have your permission to save you? After all, I'm like God. I'm a gentleman. I'm not going to interrupt your little life to save you from an eternal death. He doesn't need your permission. It is not of him that wills. It is not of him that runs. It is God who shows mercy. So, once again, with reference to the saving apocalyptic event of Christ, which is, in the words of Hawkeye, there's been a great deed of salvation done. In the light of that salvific, apocalyptic event of Christ, I've, I've been impelled to ask the question that's the basis of our whole study of Romans. I asked one question in the beginning of Revelation. Is God's justice retributive or is it transformative and restorative? We answered that. My question at the beginning of study of Paul, better call Paul, do all of Paul's epistles constitute an apocalypse or a stunning revelation of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ? My answer is yes. 
after 100 hours in Romans and 109 in Better Call Paul. And I'll demonstrate this even more emphatically, yes. These epistles are the dynamic documentation of the apocalypse of God as the movement of passionate Trinitarian philanthropy, fiery, passionate love for people. God's great love for humankind and indeed for all of creation. So as I opened, I'll close. God does two things that are infinitely beyond the horizon and scope of creaturely ability. He calls non-existent things into existence, and he raises the dead to life. Both of these acts are required to fulfill his new creation. He calls things into existence that didn't exist before. Then they're made without form and void without him. But then he raises the dead to life, Jesus Christ to life. And in raising Jesus Christ to life, he raises the creation to its, his original intent. And he resides in that creation so that it is no longer void and without form. These things then, all of creation, were void and without form in themselves. And as Romans 8.20 goes on to say, the creation was made subject to vanity, not by its own will, but by the will of the creator. The creator himself is the one who fills up the space of creation's futility by entering the creation in Jesus Christ and him crucified, and then raised from the dead. Creation in the beginning, void and without form in itself, is filled up with all the fullness of God by an act of instauration, the act of God's love, which identifies the creation with the crucified and risen Jesus. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus by which humanity is rectified by God's grace and human belief and human faith are as powerless to justify as human works in adherence to the law. It's Christ's faithfulness. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus in Romans 3.24 by which all humanity is rectified and set right by God's grace is the second aspect of God's act of creation by which all of creation becomes ever new and always pristine, free from the reign of sin and death that ruled it in its former futility. Are you waiting for that to happen? I am. I want that to happen more than Christmas. In fact, I can't wait till Christmas is over already. I want that to happen when creation is finally free from the reign of sin and death that ruled it in its former futility. When this creation is completed, then God will be all in all. And that means that all of humanity will have grasped the dimensions of the love of Christ that surpasses any human way of knowing. And that all of humanity as well as all of creation will be all filled up with all the fullness of God. All of creation then becomes the cathedral of the indwelling of the one God who is love 
and who has even now gifted us with his love. Christ comprises all reality. God is pleased in all of his divinity to dwell in Christ bodily. But Christ bodily has embraced and embodied all of creation so that in that moment of the telos, God, who is pleased to dwell in his son, will be equally pleased to dwell in all of the creation that is embodied in his son. Nothing short of that is the goal of God's plan for man, for women, for men and women, for children, for the creation, for angels, for humanity, for the material creation in all of its times and all of its spaces. Thank you, Father, for this hope. May we glory in this hope. May we boast in the hope of the glory of God, even in our tribulation, even in our troubles, even in our difficulties, even in the delays that seem to define our life. May we understand that there's a blanket of providence over all of our life's emergencies, exigencies, lacks, and delays, that there's a blanket of providence over our whole lives. And, Father, grant us now that hope will overflow in us. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name.